Uh, let me introduce you to Rick Hoyt. Uh, he's a severely disabled young man. His cerebral palsy is so bad he can't talk, uh, feed himself or dress himself. He can't walk, run or swim, and yet Rick Hoyt has completed 958 endurance events, including many triathlons. Uh, he's completed 65 marathons uh, and also six gruelling ultra-long-distance Hawaiian Ironman triathlons. How's that possible, you ask, if he can't walk, run or swim? Well, the answer is because his father, Dick, carried him. Uh, he towed him in an inflatable boat while he swam. Uh, he carried him through the transition areas. Uh, he pedalled him through the cycle legs on a modified bicycle and he pushed him in a wheelchair for the running sections. Uh, and so Rick made it all the way to the finish line, a, a winner. Why? Uh, what would make a father do that for a son? After their first run together, Rick said to his father, Dad, when I'm running with you, I don't feel like I'm handicapped. Well, that was enough for Dick to do whatever he could to, make his, to help his son experience the freedom of being able to run, uh, to succeed, to win, to, to make it to the finish line. Uh, what a picture, a father who gives himself up in sacrifice for the son he loves, who carries a helpless son all the way to the finish line. Uh, that passage Eleanor just read for us from Romans 3 describes God just like that father. Uh, Romans 3 also describes us. Uh, maybe you don't like to hear about yourself uh, in that way, but we are all as helpless, just as spiritually disabled as Rick Hoyt is physically disabled. We're just as incapable of doing anything on our own. We are utterly helpless. There's no room for boasting, no room for comparing yourself to others. Remember we saw it last week, all the way from chapter 1 verse 18 through to chapter 3 verse 20, there's the one point that Paul wants to hammer again and again. Everyone is guilty before God. We all deserve his wrath and judgment. Paul summarises his argument from verse 9. Have a look at verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Jews and Gentiles alike are under sin. As it's written, there's no one righteous, not even one, there's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Again and again he says it, maybe because his listeners don't want to hear it. Every aspect of our character, of our actions, is sinful. He draws to an end when he gets to chapter 3, verse 20. No one will be declared righteous in God's sight, by observing the law. 100%, no exceptions, no excuses, none who deserve God's declaration of innocence. doesn't matter what your education is, or your intelligence, or your standing. You may not like to hear that, but when it comes to meeting God's perfect standard, you're as disabled and incapable of making it to the finish line as Rick Hoyt is of running a triathlon on his own. To be right before God, we need a piggyback. We need a father to carry us, just as Dick Hoyt carried his son. And that's what God does. 
That's what we see from verse 21. This is one of the biggest turning points in the Bible. Prior to verse 21, there was no one righteous, no one who could be declared right in God's sight. But 321 begins, but now, but now, a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known. On our own, we've got no chance, but now God offers us righteousness. Uh, The rest of that paragraph then goes on to describe what that righteousness is and how we get it. It's my vote for the greatest paragraph in the whole Bible. I I don't know whether you think there's one that can beat it, but I'd be interested to hear what you think. So what actually is God's righteousness? Uh, This thing that's been revealed, but now God's righteousness has been revealed. What is it? You may may remember a couple of weeks back, back in chapter 1, verse 16, Paul said he's not ashamed of the gospel because it saves people. And then in 117, he said, for in the gospel... A righteousness from God is revealed. Our English version says righteousness from God. But the original language actually just says God's righteousness or the righteousness of God. In the gospel, God's righteousness is made known or revealed. Now, you can understand that phrase, God's righteousness, in at least a couple of ways. So on the one hand... It shows us something about God, uh, his own character of being righteous. In the Gospel, we see that God is faithful and trustworthy and just and reliable, that he keeps his promises, that he always acts in a way that's consistent with his character. That's what it means that God himself is righteous. But secondly, this phrase, God's righteousness, is about a gift that he offers to us. Uh, the gift of being acquitted and declared innocent, of a restored relationship, a gift of being made righteous. And that's what it's... It says this same phrase here in chapter 3, verse 21. It says, but now God's righteousness has been made known. And in the paragraph that follows, we get both of these two aspects, uh, God's character and the gift that he gives us. So first up, though, uh, the first part of the paragraph talks about the gift. Uh, Look at verse 22. This righteousness of God, or this God's righteousness, comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, or to all who have faith. Comes through faith in Jesus to all who have faith. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace. So what is it that's being offered? What is it that's being made known? Uh, Well, uh, a gift of being justified, uh, being declared right, uh, of being declared innocent. Not something you can earn or work or save up for uh, because no one can do that. No one can be declared right by observing the law. Uh, The only way you can get it is as a gift which is why that word grace appears there at the start of verse 24. It comes by grace, completely undeserved. But how does the gift come? How do you receive a gift? Well, verse 22 says the gift comes through faith in Jesus to all who believe or to all who have faith. So the gift comes through faith in Jesus. It means that we must trust what Jesus has done. 
Uh, the rest of the paragraph then goes on to describe what Jesus has done. Uh, but there's another way that you can translate that first phrase, faith in Jesus. Uh, in fact, if you've got a, a new NIV, it, it's probably a, a footnote down there at the bottom. Uh, and the alternate way of translating it is faithfulness of Jesus. Uh, righteousness comes through the perfect law-keeping and obedience of Jesus. It's just as true to, uh, just as correct to translate it that way, the faithfulness of Jesus as well as faith in Jesus. I think it's probably the right way to translate it here actually because he, he sort of repeats the fact that we have to have faith in it in the very next phrase. So what does that mean, that God's gift of righteousness comes through Jesus being faithful to all who have faith in that? We'll come back to our faith in a moment. So what is it about Jesus being faithful? Well, Jesus does what we can't do. We aren't faithful. We can't keep the law, but Jesus can, and he does it for us. He does it on our behalf, and so we receive the righteousness that he earns because of his law-keeping, because of his faithfulness. It's like the tax agent who correctly fills in all the complicated tax forms for you and then lodges them. You sign your name at the bottom and then you get the tax refund. Uh, you benefit from someone else's work. Or it's like how Dick Hoyt dragged and pushed and carried his son across the whole course of the triathlon. Rick contributes nothing and yet he completes the race because of the work of another. Jesus completes the race of righteousness on our behalf and we win the benefit. But how does that work? How can God declare sinful people innocent? The process is described there in verse 24. When we trust what Jesus has done, we're justified freely by his grace. Justified is, uh, is about being declared righteous. It's a judge's verdict. Uh, it's from the same word group as righteousness. Verse 20 said that no one could be declared righteous by what we do, uh, but we can be declared righteous because of what Jesus does on our behalf. And so because of that, God declares us innocent. He, he justifies us freely as a gift when we don't deserve it. Uh, it's a judge's ruling. It's from the law court. Verse 24 goes on to describe uh, the basis for that uh, ruling, how we earn it or, or how it's earned. God's verdict for guilty people comes because of Jesus' work, uh, which is described in verse 24 using another word, redemption. Uh, those who believe in Jesus are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. We've had this word picture from the law court. Uh, now we get a word picture that comes from the slave market. Uh, this word, to redeem, uh, is, uh, ha happens because uh, someone who's forced into slavery because they've got a debt to pay off. They, they can't just uh, declare bankrupt. They, they've got to sell themselves to pay off their debt. But if a friend comes along, uh, they can redeem their friend from slavery by paying off their debts. They can be set free by paying uh, a cost, by redeeming them. About the only time we use the word redemption these days is if you take your 
TV down to cash converters or your guitar because you can't pay a bill. And then you want to get your guitar back and you, you have to redeem your goods. You have to pay uh, money to, to get your goods back, to buy your goods back. And so for Jesus to redeem us, it means he's paid some sort of price that sets us free. Well, verse 25, Paul tells us what that price was. God presented him, Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. A sacrifice of atonement, that's an idea, it's a picture that's come, not from the law court, not from the slave market, it's come from the temple. Uh, so within two verses, Paul has thrown in these illustrations or these words from the law court, the slave market and from the temple. A sacrifice of atonement was a, a sacrifice that a worshipper offers to satisfy God's anger, to pay punishment for sin. Atonement is about uh, making two parties at one. Uh, to atone is to, to satisfy anger. God's anger is satisfied not by our death, but by Jesus' death, who dies in our place. That's the price that redeems, the atonement that satisfies. But how do we make use of that payment? It's no good a payment being available if you can't access the payment. It's a bit like the M5 motorway rebate. I don't know how many of you know that you, if you travel on the M5 in a car and you, you pay a toll, the New South Wales government will refund it, minus GST. But you've actually got to know it's available before you can receive it. You've got to set up an account, you've got to send in your refund request every time you get a bill, and if you do all of those things, you get that money credited to you. You've got to know about it and then access it. And it's the same with the redemption that Jesus offers. The, the gift, his sacrifice, is available. But we need to benefit. Uh, you can only benefit from it if you apply for it. So how do you apply for it? How do you apply for this redemption benefit? Well, we've already seen it a couple of times. We've hinted at it. You've got to trust the plan. You've got to trust the plan. Uh, there in verse 22, uh, it begins, Paul says, this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus or faith of Jesus to all who believe, to all who have faith. He says the same thing in 25, remember? He says God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. Uh, faith, blood sort of stands for his work on the cross. We have to trust what Jesus has done when he dies in our place, uh, that his punishment uh, satis satisfactorily satisfies God. We need to trust that. We need to trust God's word when he says it's effective. Uh, we need to trust Jesus' action, uh, that it does wash away sin and remove guilt and satisfies God's anger. Uh, we trust Jesus' blood by not trying to add to it. Uh, trusting it means that we accept that he's done all that we need to do Trusting it means sitting back like Rick does as his father pushes him towards the finish line. Uh, trusting means we try to add nothing to what God has done. Uh, when Karen asks me when I get into bed if I've locked the back door and I say confidently, yes, I did, then she trusts me by not making me go down and check it again. <laughs> if, 
If I say it confidently enough, she'll trust me. But if I say, mm, yeah, she says, well, go down and check it. Uh, we trust someone's work by not trying to add to it. Trusting Jesus means not trying to earn our way to God by adding anything extra. It means recognising that we're all in the wheelchair like Rick Hoyt, sitting back and rejoicing in what God's done for us. If we try to add anything, we're not trusting. Remember we began by talking about these two ways of understanding God's righteousness uh, as a gift that he offers us, but also to do with God's character in himself, his reliability, his trustworthiness. Well, Paul goes on to talk about that second aspect uh, from verses 25. Why did God do it the particular way he did? Why did he offer his own son as a sacrifice? Why didn't he just forgive us? Oh, that's all right, don't do it again. I forgive you, don't do it again. Why didn't he just do that? would have been a whole lot easier, a whole lot less painful for his son. Well, Paul answers that question in verse 25. He did, it, he did this, he did things this way to demonstrate his justice. It's actually the same word as righteousness. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, in his patience, he'd left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it this way to demonstrate his justice at the present time, at the death of Jesus so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. God caused Jesus to be killed. The Father caused the Son to be killed to demonstrate his justice. Same word as righteousness, further up in the chapter. He did it to demonstrate his own righteousness, his own character. Because God's character is to be just. Innocent people are acquitted. Guilty people are punished. That's justice. God's character all the way through the Old Testament is justice. Proverbs 17.15, we read, Acquitting the guilty, condemning the innocent, the Lord detests them both. God doesn't do those things. Exodus 23.7, have nothing to do with a false charge. Do not put an innocent or honest person to death, for I, says God, will not acquit the guilty. God says, I will not acquit the guilty. I'm just. And yet, all the way through the Old Testament, that's exactly what he does. He acquits guilty people. He forgives the sin of those who sin. He counts their imperfect faith as righteousness. He accepts their obedient sacrifices and turns away from his anger. He makes sinners his friends. He forgives their sins. That's not fair. That's not just. And then we come to the New Testament and we hear about this offer of forgiveness of guilty people being declared innocent. That's not fair. Where's the justice? That's the cry from victims of crime when judges set lenient sentences or toss out prosecution cases on a technicality. They say, where's the justice? That's not a just judge. And God could be accused of the same thing for for just 
letting innocent people go, forgiving them. That's not just. To, to forgive is not just on its own. God's nature is always to be just, to always act rightly. God's nature is always to be righteous. Sin has been committed, there has to be punishment. And so the cross demonstrates God's righteousness, his justice. The cross represents lots of things. Uh, the cross is a price that buys back, that redeems. The cross is a sacrifice that satisfies wrath, that atones for sin. But in verse 25 and 26, Paul describes the cross as a demonstration, a demonstration of justice. Old Testament sins were left unpunished. An imperfect substitute sacrifice may do to cover sin. Delayed, true justice being revealed. Until the time when the perfect once-for-all sacrifice would come and pay genuinely, truly, justly for those sins committed before and pay for the sins in the present and pay for every other sin that you and I will commit in the future. Paid in full, no further payment required. The cross is a demonstration of God's justice. A couple of months ago, uh, we bought a TV for church and it was paid for over the phone. I had to go to the loading dock at the back of the shop to pick up uh, the TV. I didn't have any money. I didn't even have the receipt. But it didn't matter because the storeman had my receipt and stamped across that receipt were the words, paid in full, no further payment required. It was all I needed. This was the demonstration of full payment. And that's the cross. God demonstrates his justice. He demonstrates that he is the one who is just as well as the one who declares other people just because of the cross. If he just declared us righteous, if he just said, oh, it doesn't matter, I forgive you, that wouldn't be justice. And if he was simply just, then, then no one would be declared righteous. But the cross demonstrates that God is both righteous and the one who declares others righteous. It's amazing, isn't it? it that's why I think it's the most incredible paragraph ever written. Well, that brings us to the final question. So what? What's all of this mean for me? Well, first and most obviously, it means that we need to trust what Jesus has done. That's where the rubber hits the road for us. If we're helpless, spiritually disabled, incapable of travelling anywhere near God's finishing line on our own, we need to trust the work of the one who can get us there. The one who's paid the price, the one who has bought us out of slavery. We need to trust the sacrifice made to atone for our sin. We need to trust the word of the one who is trustworthy, who declares us righteous with no case to answer. Have you done that? Have you trusted the work of Jesus? Maybe this is the first time it's clicked for you like this. Trust his work. Recognise your sin. Confess it to God. Thank him for the work of his son who presented himself to satisfy God's justice against you. Many of us, that's something we've already done. 
what can we do? Well, we can thank God again for his righteousness, his trustworthiness, for the confidence that his character gives us to live without guilt and shame or uncertainty. He's demonstrated his justice. The cross is the demonstration that the price is paid in full with no further payment required. The Christian who understands their own sin and God's grace can live with a confidence that no one else can experience. And as we live out that trust, we can recognise that we're just like Rick Hoyt, that we're helpless, that we need God to do everything for us. We don't give a little push, we're incapable. And if we recognise that we're incapable, that God does everything for us, that's got to drastically affect how you pray, doesn't it? It's got to drastically affect how you pray. If we recognise that God is the one who carries us, then we're going to turn to him in prayer for everything. As we try to do it, as we try to, to, to add our thing to, to what God has done, we're not inclined to pray. To pray. So how is your prayer? One final thing uh, it should mean if we're trusting the work of God is that we shouldn't boast. You can see Paul turns there from verse 27. And that's really where it gets relevant for the Christians who were in Rome. To remember who we've got, we've got the, the two groups sitting on opposite sides of church. Who are they? Two groups, not male and female. Jew and Gentile, great. So we've got the Jews sitting on one side of church. The Jews thought that they deserved special consideration before God because they had the law. Uh, the Gentiles, I'm pretty sure, thought they were strong. They thought they were the, the ones who were in charge of the church and uh, who had strong consciences and didn't need to worry about Sabbath and uh, other law. They thought they were better than the Jews. But being declared righteous doesn't come from knowing the law. It, it doesn't come from being stronger than the weak. It doesn't come from having a strong conscience. Uh, it's a gift. And neither side can boast about a gift. You haven't earned a gift. You, you can't boast about a gift. A, a gift makes the giver special uh, rather than the receiver. So don't boast. Uh, you're no better than the not-yet-Christians you meet at work or in your family. Uh, don't dismiss them or judge them. Don't compare yourself to other Christians. Don't set up little measure, measuring sticks that flatter you compared to, to them. Church attendance or theological understanding or Bible reading regularity or how much you donate when we do that, when we compare, when we boast, uh, we're not trusting what Jesus has done. We're trying to add. Instead, what we need to do is to live our lives in a way that makes the giver of the gift special. We're not special. Uh, we need to humbly serve others, gratefully honour Jesus and proclaim him and live for him as the king and saviour that the world needs. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that uh, you would help us to understand more of these uh, truths. Uh, they are deep and rich and, and every word is just full of so much.
Uh, it's been a poor effort, really, for me to try and uh, explain all of that. But uh, your spirit is at work. So we thank you that your spirit uh, makes these truths sink home to us. We pray that you would help us to trust the work of your son, uh, help us not to boast, help us to be humble, help us to rejoice in the gift that you've given us. Uh, help us to rejoice uh, in your grace and your mercy and your goodness and your love. In Jesus' name, amen.